be full of fright. I grant that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Welcome to The Dispatchist, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. This is episode 54 of The Dispatchist. I thought you were going to say 54 of the trilogy. This is episode 54 (laughs) of The Dispatchist trilogy, Over, Over the Garden Wall. And with me this week are my lovely co-hosts, Victoria. Hello. Jamin. Hello. And I am a pumpkin. Yes, you are. Yes. I'm glad you finally came to terms with that. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was weird. Yes. So this week, I do want to kind of mention a debt of gratitude we have to two YouTube videos. One of them is Into the Unknown, a critical examination of Over the Garden Wall by Henry Kathman. The other is Trey the Explainer's Over the Garden Wall is Dante's Inferno, Symbolism Analysis. And while I don't think we necessarily are plagiarizing from these two one of them was very informative and was sort of the inspiration of this entire discussion, which is the hellish correspondences and illusions within the Over the Garden Wall cartoon series. Yes. It's a very Halloween series, but it's also a very autumn series. So, And also, because it's an Inferno reference, it's kind of our Inferno-vember note for the year. Yeah, this is we're, we're taking it easy this time. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get any of the references. I poor Jamin. They're kind of subtle. <laughs> They're kind of subtle. Yeah. <laughs> the third circle of hell was populated entirely by animals in tiny little costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, it mm-hmm. was the adorable playing, level. Yeah. Playing a uh, kind of ragtimey instruments. So it's worth saying that this is a very spoilery episode. I think we're going to assume that everybody's seen the series just in terms of how we talk about it. So we're not going to worry about giving away the ending. Snape kills Dumbledore. Damn it! <laughs> sorry, got. Oh, oh man, sorry. You didn't, didn't know that one. Uh, he was a ghost all along. Yeah. So we're not going to worry about that. So this is for people that want to rewatch the series. And you should. You should. It's that time of year. Mm-hmm. Autumn. Autumn turning into winter. Unless you discover this podcast in the spring, in which, welcome. I think we're a perennially autumnal. Happy Easter. <laughs> Mazel tov. <laughs> Before we get into the topic at hand, did anybody bring anything to the party? I brought some some drinks. Are they pumpkin-based? No, they no. are age-appropriate beverages. Do tell. Well, they're age-appropriate beverages. If we're going to go, you know, party in the graveyard, I'm we have to age. have age-appropriate beverages. Oh, right, right. Yes, uh-huh. age-appropriate beverages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wink, wink. We all know what those are. No. <laughs> do we? I don't think I do, actually. <laughs> I feel like we're all missing the joke we should have not missed. <laughs> In the, There's a, a graveyard scene where a bunch of kids are, are having a little party with age of rubbery beverages at the end of the mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. It was a reference. Mm-hmm. Jamin. I have some more entertainment besides the DVD. Okay. For our amusement, the mountain-sized and obscene horse-lipped Tiamat, the great dragon, will stab thieves with a fork. Driving through the mountain-sized cavern filled with wailing and screams. I, I particularly like the horse-lipped Tiamat. That's that's a nice touch. And it cr- it directly 
connects to Fred, the, the kleptomaniac horse. <laughs> Who is horse lipped because he's a horse. Right. But it's, he's wearing lipstick at one point. <laughs> that was a little creepy. <laughs> I love Fred. <laughs> it's one of my favorite characters. Kids, Fred should not be your role model. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? Oh, he's a horse thief. I get it. Oh, damn. Okay. Yeah, okay. I nice. just didn't even. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I always get him confused with the laughing horse in Disenchant. Is it Disenchantment? I always call it Disenchanted. Disenchantment, the Matt Granig cartoon. Yeah, I don't know. There's a laughing horse in that. I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there is. But that's a different uh-huh. laughing horse. It is a very, but I, I always think, like, I was waiting for Fred to start laughing because I, because to me, all horses look the same. Yeah. <laughs> I'm You're horse not blind. Wrong. So, but yeah, yeah. Jamin, do you have anything? I brought a raw pumpkin. So, what good is that? I don't know. Jacob told me to bring a raw pumpkin. Okay. I did. What was the weird Netflix series that was kind of a podcast set in an animated background of Strange? I do not know. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, Oh. the one where it's like they just talked, but then the background was completely different. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing series. This person does these kind of metaphysical narratives that it's the podcast. And also there's like weird science fiction animation in the background that doesn't quite correlate, but doesn't not correlate. And it just goes very strange places. It's a really neat series. Midnight Gospel? Yeah. Okay. Pendleton Ward is the creator. Okay. I've never heard of that. Or maybe you've mentioned it to me and I have just, I'm not, I have not followed up on it. I'm having trouble because I uh, finally finished the season of Stranger Things. And so I keep thinking that that's actually happening in the world. Oh, that's a (laughs) a news article? (laughs) I think Stranger Things is actually a news article. (laughs) <laughs> it's a documentary. I I could I could believe that. I mean, certainly season mm-hmm. two really really felt very real for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do have some actual news. Okay, oh. what's that? At least I think it's news. I can't I can't really tell. Uh, and that is that Walmart has been selling the Hellraiser Lament configuration as an educational toy for STEM children. Ah, <gasps> uh, I know, I know that they are definitely selling it to adults. I did not know about children. It's very educational. Flip it, twist it, bop it. (laughs) Don't twist it. (laughs) So the Cenobites are essentially like just big Merlins. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I'm looking at a a picture from their advertisement. It's got a little child looking wistfully at the puzzle box. Saying ability training, your imagination is unlimited. It helps build self-respect and confidence. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know. So confidence and pain tolerance. <laughs> it's true. It's pain true. tolerance leads to self-respect, and you know negotiation tactics. In that way, you can you know get yourself out of uh huh hell. Uh-huh. In case you didn't. Well, I mean, according to Dante, the only way to get out of hell is just to keep walking. Like, he didn't do anything hard. He just went. He just kind of followed his inner Virgil. Mm. The Virgil Vigil. His his outer Virgil at this time. His outer inner Virgil Vigil. Yeah. So, how much is the Lament configuration? 
Um, oh, they took it off the market. <laughs> too many kids. Too many kids swallowing hooks. Ah. So, so I'm I'm still kind of intrigued. I'm still intrigued by the twenty two dollars. Wow. See, that's a that's a Ooh, bargain. For twenty two twenty seven, you can get a working limit configuration box. <laughs> but perhaps, perhaps you shouldn't. You should buy one right now before they're gone forever. No, I'll I'll live without. Thank you. Use use company funds. So, do you think like would you be afraid to actually use it because maybe this one is live? Um, they'd all be really small. I mean, I mean, it's kind of the intent, and maybe boredom is not. I don't know. That's hard to say. Uh huh. Let's just not. Let's let's leave it a closed question. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what if all Rubik's cubes essentially were, but we just haven't really noticed, <laughs> or we haven't found the right pattern how, yet? How? How? How do you miss that? Well, I've never solved a Rubik's cube. Oh, my so. brother-in-law solves them like when he's asleep. It's scary. That is weird. Yeah. I learned how to take them apart and put them back together. That's not See, I think, quite the same. Yeah. And what you do is I had a friend who was very much like your brother-in-law. You take them apart and you swap the blue and the green corners. So they can never, like, they can never be put back together. It's amazing. So you're that guy. I am that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you're Jason goddamn Funderburg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did have some Dante adjacent news, but I think it's okay. just it's just news to me. Like nobody else will care. And that is that I was watching one of the um comedy news people in the morning, I think it was Seth Meyers, and mm-hmm. he was showing these like blobby things that looked like dancing female body parts gallivanting around in like giant puffy costumes. It's like Sid and Marty Croft are discussing, you know, your reproductive parts and it was very weird looking and there were two of them and it turned out these were the mascots for france's <gasps> 2024 olympics yes the little hats that yeah. look <laughs> suspiciously okay, hang on. They're, they're, they're called phrygian caps p-h-r-y-g-i-a-n caps and when yeah, i, I know saw them, when i saw them i got very excited because i thought maybe they were dante's hat Oh, but they're not. No, He's wearing more of a snood. They're really right? similar. Uh-huh. Dante is wearing a what is technically called a bag cap. Oh, really? Really. <laughs> this the Smurfs wear Phrygian caps. Right. Yes. Uh-huh. But they call them Smurf caps. Oh. Yeah, cuz everything is Smurf this, Smurf that, right? Yeah, yeah, it makes it makes cooking instructions very difficult. <laughs> when you said dancing women's body parts, uh-huh. He didn't mean arms. I was thinking, you know, like the, you know. Boobs? Yeah. Yeah. That's a uterus. Thinking? That's a uterus. That's a uterus. Yeah. Or is it a uterus or is it? Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it is more uterine. Is that the right? Uterine? <laughs> uterine. Uh-huh. It does very, like, yeah. I don't think they, you know, they should have run that past some eight-year-old boys. <laughs> like everything, children's names. Yeah. Olympic a, mascots should all be run past eight-year-old send, boys. Your Logos. 70, your 75-year-old grandfather and your eight-year-old nephew. Like, <laughs> get them both to bet this. Because it's the revolutionary cap, right? Like, that's what their intention was. Right. But instead, it's- It doesn't really look- Yeah, lady parts. Yeah, it doesn't look mm-hmm. sensible. Like, I mean, Olympic mascots tend to be pretty weird anyway. 
mm-hmm. but this looks kind of biological. It's kind of like, to, to, I don't know if y'all are f- as familiar with Lil Abner, the comic strip as I am, but they had these creatures called the schmooze. Yeah. And yeah. initially I thought those were schmooze. And then I realized like, oh, were the schmooze actually like wombs? Oh my gosh. There's like the actual, oh, that's terrifying. There'll be photos in the show notes. <laughs> it's kind of like when people make, try to make a Peppa Pig cookies and they come out. That's exactly what this is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Olympic version of a Peppa Pig Is cookie. it too late to ask for dancing boobs? No, I think they're probably open to suggestions. <laughs> we might want to rework this down the road. <laughs> Fixed it. Is there any more hell news? I think that's that's a pretty good uh that's a pretty good uh taste taste of the hell news. Well, then let's let's talk about the TV series uh, Over the Garden Wall. This okay. is the story of two brothers that go in on a journey of discovery into the unknown through kind of American autumn nostalgia land, but also possibly the land of the dead or something like that. Um, and over the course of the journey, they learn a lot of valuable lessons, face a demonic beast character, and eventually kind of come back to the world of the living with better mental health and social skills. Yes. Mm-hmm. Worst summary ever. <laughs> it's true. It's true. No. I'm just kidding. That was actually that was actually fine. Yeah, a little cynical, um, but <laughs> I just, I just, I didn't get it. No, it was too deep so, for me. So, what did you not get? Episodes one through ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's start with the big question: Is this a transparent Dante allegory? No. Okay. Dante Allegory would be a good name for a character. <laughs> it really because <laughs> it's very close to Allegory. Yes, yes. That was the, that mm-hmm. was the joke. Sorry, I'm I'm being Captain Obvious. It's today. okay. I love his, <laughs> I love his series. Um, <laughs> so we, I think we 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 have a a small point of argument with the YouTuber Trey the Explainer, who says that he was the first person to discover the Dante and over the garden wall link. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of disagree with that. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, the main, I think it's fair to say the, uh-huh. the, the third protagonist or tritagonist, her name is Beatrice. Like right there. It's a kind of giveaway. And there are a lot of other clear references. I think, uh, I, even just the fact that there's a very specific time for this journey. Hmm. Just as there was for the Inferno, the Inferno took place from Good Friday to Easter Sunday in 1300. Oh, yeah. The um, the moon, supposedly the moon in Over the Garden Wall is actually the moon. It's the, the moon on the night that the show aired November 3rd, 2014. Hmm. Uh, so there's this astronomical mm-hmm. tie-in as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to end up doing like a point-by-point breakdown of the Dante references because... Uh, Trey did a really good job of it and like points to him. That That is a solid video. Mm-hmm. No, it was incredibly useful. Do we want to go through 
the whole series first and then talk about some more general points? Or what is the best way to approach this? Circle by circle? This journey. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, there are 10, there are 10 chapters in this, which do correlate to kind of the, the circles and levels of the Inferno. Although originally there were going to be 18, so maybe that was kind of an after-the-fact decision. I don't know. But it does it does track fairly well. Um, mm-hmm. I have a couple of motifs that I think we should be looking for and things I want to kind of touch on. Hope and optimism, that's a huge one. Mm-hmm. Uh, death, death symbolism, death celebration is pretty big. Turtles. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, costuming. Like, costuming is a ma- – co- and, and, like, sort of – deception and disguise and identity but like specifically costuming is a major theme throughout the entire series it's interesting i don't know if you saw this too but there was a really strong commitment to historical accuracy in the design of this i kind of series. kind of figured there was because everything has this kind of like retro nostalgia like mm-hmm. as as a motif and i think part of it is like kind of this deep americana thing like the picture you've got in your wallpaper today is like little kids in a school setting with a very believable school marm in the background mm-hmm. supposed to be kind of a gibson girls yeah look and have a very specific feel puritan pumpkins is jaman's wallpaper Mm-hmm. yeah and that also references a very germanic it's a throwback to German folklore and practice around putting a pumpkin on your head. The, the beginnings of Halloween and har- you know, sort of a early, huh. um, you know, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century harvest festival. Because if you if you look at um, vintage Hallow- vintage Halloween objects from Germany, this is it. Like there are these, you know, kind of carved gourds. And pumpkin people, um, pumpkin people, and um, they're all you know paper mache. But uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's definitely accurate to that style. And each one of the little vignettes has a very particular time frame and style. Yeah, yeah. Of- I wonder if they like they they. I wonder if they leap around or if they proceed chronologically. I don't have I don't have notes on that really. I think they're just all over the place. I think it's all over the place. But there was also drive to be accurate even down to the doors because doors <laughs> doors and portals you know whether they be oh do you have something about say say no, about doors it's like and portals? doors and portals are the same thing it must wow. be dante uh-huh but so they even you know made sure that the latches and handles on doors were completely accurate oh i love that's delightful obsession uh-huh it's really pretty cool and there's a lot of uh, reference to specific art styles and animation styles. Yeah, there was sort of a love letter of animation going on here. We've got some Max Fleischer references, mm-hmm. and that's that may be the biggest one there. Some Betty Boop, some use of the rotoscope. Highwayman song oh, is yeah rotoscope. Yeah, and and, yep. and heavily Cab Calloway influenced. Uh huh. So yeah, and there's a uh, lots and lots like the the tavern is yeah Betty Boop esque. So you've got really cool stuff. Well, we can get started with the old grist mill, which is chapter okay. one. Both both the Inferno and Over the Garden Wall begin, you know, I was lost in the midpoint of my life in the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we kind of roll from there. One of the things I noticed on my third view is how old Wirt, the protagonist, looks. 
like his widow's peak looks I, I, I say this because I'm looking at myself in the zoom call. <laughs> He's got the kind of the, the middle aged widow's peak thing happening. Uh huh. He is. Yeah. You don't see it as much when his ha- when his funny tall conical hat is off, but he just mm-hmm. looks prematurely old, and I think that ties into Dante's idea of exploring the darkness as kind of the midpoint turning of his life. Uh, yeah, and when you're 14, you really do think that's the midpoint of your life. Yeah, right, pretty much. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Word is also kind of at a transitional age, kind mm-hmm. of this like mm-hmm. on the border border of adulthood sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Pretty he's, much. He's ha- he's a boy and he's a man. He's 14. So the kids are lost in the forest. They meet the woodsman, who's a major character over time, kind of the crazy person played by Christopher Lloyd, who of course. much love. Mm-hmm. The younger brother, Greg, who's this bubbling pot of imagination and enthusiasm, leaves a trail of candy, and then they are attacked by a giant bestial dog thing with like wolf thing with like crazy eyes, uh, chases them all over this old mill, which they end up destroying. We get a lot of warnings of the beast and whoever that is, which is an enemy to come. But this is not the beast. This is just a wolf. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the wolf is turned back into a dog. So that was uh, artifice in disguise and barfs up a black turtle, which he had eaten, which (laughs) might have been part of his transformation, might not have been. Well, here's a question. So going, uh, you know, just thinking about the Dante references. Sorry, Jamin. Um, but <laughs> the wolf was the wolf famine. What was the wolf? In? I think the oh. wolf was like, I think the wolf was, was a she wolf too. Right. We should remember this. A it was an important is. month for us, but the, the, I kind of saw that the, the dog being the wolf, but do you know, do you know who owned the, the old grist mill? Cause he said, Oh, this is a, it's an abandoned grist mill, but do you know who actually owned it? Yes, we do learn that at the end. Mm-hmm. It's Beatrice's family. Beatrice, yep. and that's her dog. Yeah. Oh, really? That's cute. Mm-hmm. You haven't met them yet. Oh. Um. And it and it's kind of misleading for you to bring this up because at this point the mill does oh, look destroyed and old and ancient. So uh-huh. the Beatrice the Bluebird, who is a transformed human, as we all know, her family owns the mill, but they own it in kind of a lighter version of the world, which is where it's furnished and a pleasant place to live and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right now, mm-hmm. it looks pretty bad, and then the kids destroy it, so it looks worse. Um, <gasps> the entire thing collapses. Yeah. Um. So some things that are recurring: the, the black turtle. That's a recurring image throughout, and the fans are kind of uncertain what this means. Um. We meet. We encounter Adelwood for the first time, which is this kind of this wood that seems to be burned for occult purposes. Specifically, like, preserve the woodsman's daughter whose soul is lost in a dancing lamp sort of thing. A major motif in the entire series is, uh, let's call it not that bad, where we encounter over and over again things that are very, very threatening, but really aren't that bad. In this case, the wolf is a charming puppy dog that happens to be transformed into a horrible beast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a big one. Uh, costuming the wolf in his transformation into, or the dog in his transformation into wolf is like a costume. It's definitely kind of this artifice layer. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to say, I felt really bad for the little dog because it's sort of like the... <laughs> I can't remember what it's called, but it's the Garfield cartoon where it sort of assumes that this is a... Like, Garfield is alone in um, the house 
and starving to death. And so he's imagining the entire run of the comic strip. <laughs> it's, some, it's a theory about what? Garfield. I've never heard that one, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that it's it's kind of like the the Garfield without Garfield, but much much darker. Where yeah, his in his hunger, he's he's hallucinating. It's just, it flash, flashback before his eyes. His life flashes. Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of imagine <coughs> that poor dog. Like the family has all been turned into bluebirds, and he's just starving, so he's eating these turtles. And this kid comes along throwing candy out of his pants. What are you going to do? And the another trope that's pretty common in this is kind of fairy tale logic, but it doesn't work. Like right. Uh-huh. In, in Hansel and Gretel, the trail is supposed to lead them to safety. And it doesn't work because I think the birds eat the trail. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it brings danger to them in the form of the wolf thing. And Adelaide. And does Adelaide come because of candy? No, but she is... She's very much like a handsome, that seems like a very handsome. Oh, girl. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's kind mm-hmm. of the, well, I think the creepy witch in the woods is, is well, she's, she's played up as a good fairy, but is yes. darker than that. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because we have a, du- a, we have a binary there with, with the sisters. Yeah. Good trope subversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that in- incoherent ramble kind of takes us to part two, which is <laughs> hard times of the Huskin Bee. <laughs> Which is where we really started to get into the show's um, kind of the show's celebration of death, like death positivism. I guess is the mm-hmm, the right mm-hmm. way to phrase that. Yeah, yeah. It makes I don't know. It's kind of like if that's the afterlife, that seems pretty great. Well, I don't think it is the afterlife. Um, for one thing, this episode corresponds to the limbo level of hell. I was just going to say, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're in a transitional. Pumpkins. Yes, pumpkins do symbolize pumpkins. Pie. Yes. <laughs> nothing, there's nothing more transitional than pie. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. I had yeah. a pie. I ate a pie. It's gone. That's life. Mm-hmm. So we meet the bird Beatrice, who is going to be our traveling companion for a while. Um, she's bound to serve them because bound to serve the kids because Greg has freed her from a bush, and so she's promising him to do a nice favor and do a good turn. We get to the town of Pottsfield, which death tie-in, Pottsfield is a reference to the Potter's Field, which is where, I think, paupers are buried. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me look that up. And paupers are that thing you get in like your milk tea, filled with like, strawberry or raspberry, and like, they burst in your mouth? No, you buy them at, at gay stores. Oh right, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> those were they're very big in the eighties. I'm sure they're still big now. Um. So yeah, it's a pauper's grave. Potter's Field is a, but it's I didn't realize that it's a uh, biblical origin. Oh, okay, I can believe that. That mm-hmm. goes way back. Yeah, Akeldama, the uh, field of blood. Hmm. Oh, okay, and Enoch. Also, also biblical. biblical. Very much uh-huh. so. We haven't gotten to Enoch yet, um, but oh, we will. Sorry. No, that's all right. This is a very disorganized ramble. So the kids interrupt a harvest festival where there's a bunch of pumpkin-headed people dancing merrily, and it's kind of got a May Day thing happening, but they're like weaving ribbons around a very tall pumpkin man, and they are little pumpkin people themselves. The big pumpkin person is named Enoch, as we've established. He has a wonderful deep baritone voice, which has this kind of grinding undertone of threat over it. 
Now let me get this straight. You come to our town, you trample our crops, you interrupt our private engagement. Now you want to leave. Uh, yes. Again, there's a, a not that bad sort of trope with him because he's really not that bad. We do learn that under every pumpkin is a skeleton. As as happens in real life. Yeah. True, true. Every pumpkin uh-huh. does contain a skull. Mm-hmm. The kids, after disrupting the festival, are forced to do community labor, where they go and dig their own graves, they, they think. But it turns out uh-huh. there's, there's skeletons under the soil. The skeletons get up, do a bit of a spooky, scary skeleton dance, and wear gourds and cord husks and join the party. Yeah. They're kind of agents of excarnation yes, in yeah. this one. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I use the word recarnation. Yeah. Because they are dressed in their bodies, actually. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they don't have it. So the excarnation has has previously occurred. Yeah. There's some great foreshadow lines that when the pumpkin people meet Bert and Greg, one of them says, aren't you a little early? <laughs> and on their way out, Enoch says, you'll join us one day. So here's a question. So it seems that Wirt several times is kind of given the opportunity to 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 move on to death and this is this may this is probably the first time where it's very explicit and yeah. this entire series is kind of a liminal thing mm-hmm. not just uh, spoilers it may be a, a near-death experience that's played up in like the final two episodes mm-hmm. like which, garfield like the entire run of like garfield, garfield. <laughs> just mm-hmm. like garfield which brings mm-hmm. me to my point is like even with all the imagery it's not a dante analog or, or oh, an no. inferno analog yeah. right it's like no no not at all i mean well like, not 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 at all but no it's not a one-to-one correspondence it references it it references it, it but it's not like an homage to or a reinterpretation of so like i say at the beginning i don't buy it i think it's all coincidence so so you think all literary illusion is just coincidence yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah. yeah so okay here's a question that i was wondering about um and this came up in Trey the Explainer's uh, video. Do you buy that Enoch is potentially Minos? Well, I can see it. Minos has those that long tail that wraps around him nine times, and the pumpkin guy has like this, this mayday skirt of like long tassels and things like that. But I don't think it really goes. It may be a reference, but mm-hmm. not 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 a deep one because I mean he doesn't judge anybody at all he's just kind no. of like, he's kind of a gatekeeper yeah in terms of like the journey to death that's going to come and like he monitors this realm i think minus is deeper in the story anyway i think he's a, a he's after limbo maybe maybe i don't know well, he, yeah mm-hmm. yeah this was one of those places where i was like mm. but i also have to say in our introduction to beatrice she's kind of the anti um, Inferno Beatrice because she's unwilling to be made a symbol because she keeps <laughs> arguing against the whole like, you know, she kind of uses it when she needs to about being the harbinger of of good luck. And she kind of plays on that to in order to get them to follow her. Yeah, but she's corrupt. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dante's Beatrice is anything but corrupt. Except she's vengeful because I also... I thought, you know what? Maybe this is closer, clo- more closely related to Purgatorio. And so I, you know, I watched more videos of like quickie <laughs> Purgatorios. And 
I feel like Beatrice, this Beatrice is more in line with the Beatrice at the end of Purgatorio. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll have to read Purgatorio right now. No! <laughs> Actually, I have an idea for Purgatorio because I feel like th- we should, when we do our 7 to 15 part series on the 7 Deadly Dwarves or 15 Deadly Dwarves, Purgatorio is... A good name for a dwarf. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. Happy, dopey, sleepy doc Purgatorio. <laughs> That's right. Poor Purgatorio. Nobody ever paid attention to him. Well, Dante's Inferno is alluded to in this series a lot. It's not an allegory. It's just, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's clever illusion. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot of other illusions for sure. Costumes, the pumpkin, the skeletons are wearing their bodies, which they dress mm-hmm. themselves in. And uh, so really kind of the costume here gives them identity. It makes them into people. That, yeah. I think the costuming makes you a people is a very common thing in this series as well. So that's actually incarnation, taking the spirit and putting it into a body. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. Except huh. that it's not because carn is the root word for meat. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are pumpkins. But there's, so they're it's, vegetarian. It's, <laughs> they're um, vegetarian bodies. Oh my gosh. I can't remember the name. Of the, I, there's a word. Yes. Uh, it's actually apocalocentosis. Apocalocentosis, which is making someone into a gourd. Oh my! God. Is it? There's a, that's a thing. Apo- yes, apocalocentosis. So is that what happens in Troll too? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say yes. Because uh, the vegetarian goblins, they turn people into vegetables so that they can eat them. Yeah. Have you guys seen Troll too? <laughs> No. No. Okay, that's going to be our movie night. Oh, no. no. I will. Accept it's that. you're Jamin. Yeah, it's you're gonna you're gonna hate it. Yeah. You're gonna hate it. But you're also gonna love it. No. You're gonna hate it and you're gonna love it. So the the I pump, swear the pumpkin world <laughs> is very liminal, like it's really transitional. Um, and I think that this is not. There's evidence this is not the land of the dead. I think maybe it is more purgatory because when you get to the the final episode, there's a lot of like flash callbacks to previous moments in the series. And there you see Enoch watching over some pumpkins that are no longer wearing their, uh, their full costumes. They're like wearing the grass skirts, but they're not wearing the pumpkins. So they're skeletons again and they're lying, they're lying inert. So mm-hmm. that's at the end of the series when a lot of things that are of this transitional world have been let go. Some dead things stay dead. Some living, some things return to the land of living. And maybe this is just kind of a like limbo, well, like purgatory as well, a holding place that's that's transitional more than anything else. Well, here's a question: Do you think? Because I just kind of caught on to that. Do you think this scene that they happen upon um, at the Huskin Bee? Do you think this is strictly a, you know, All Hallows Eve event where the skeleton, where the skeletons, you know, are, um, take a bodily form and party. And then after. I don't know. The entire series is a Halloween story. So it might just be, Mm -hmm. this is their harvest festival. Yeah. This is a Halloween Eve thing. They're also referencing May Day. There's kind of that's mm-hmm. kind of the the birth death idea at the same time, so it could be kind of a wheel of the year implied, uh, a cycle of life implied. There's a lot of things that it could be, um, 
But since uh, Patrick McHale is not answering my emails right now, I don't really know. <laughs> He's yes. Lust is next. And this I can see why the school school town follies. Yes. Which I'm not sure if the Huskin Bee or this one are my favorite, but um or is my favorite, but yeah, this one I was unsure. I mean, I tied it. I I I get the swooning. I get the swooning part. Yeah, but I would have put. Yeah. Oh no! Would before I I started diving in again. I thought the Mad Love episode would be lust, but it's not. No, no. That's yeah. That's later. That's that's mm-hmm. well. In going in order, this is this is the chapter for lust, right? Mm-hmm. And the entire story is based on Langtree's desire. And simultaneously, her anger at her intended Jimmy Brown, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's who's a no account two timing bad man. Mm-hmm. So in this one, we meet Miss Langtree, who's a school teacher teaching a school full of animals. She is madly in love with Jimmy Brown, who bailed on her and walked out. She's trying to teach animals to do their sums and numbers. <laughs> no one really knows why. It's just a thing. <laughs> uh, well, probably the fan favorite song is in this scene. The animals are very sad, and they're having a very sad meal of extremely bland potatoes. And Greg pours molasses over them while singing the Potatoes and Molasses song, which is this kind of adorable, cheerful, everything is better with molasses on it. And that really, I think this song really captures like Perky Greg and his like optimism and solving problems and creating them. Uh, with kind of crazy imagination and making associations that most people wouldn't. So here's a question. I'm sorry. I'm going to have a lot of questions. When thinking about Greg versus Wirt, there's the idea that Greg is a Kierkegaardian knight of faith. Yeah, I guess we could talk about that. Uh-huh. Again, thanks to Henry Kathman and his uh, critical mm-hmm. examination of Over the Garden Wall, which kind of touches on this. The knight of faith maybe operating in doubt, but he proceeds forward based on his faith and positivism. Charlie Brown is a knight of faith, according to some people. And but again, just kind of, you know, the world may be really bad, but he has, through his kind of idealism and faith, he endures. So is Odie a knight of faith? Uh, Odie to is... Uh, Garfield's Byronic hero? I guess. I guess it's that kind of, like, happy mask, sad mask pairing. And... Yeah, and also Greg is the innocent. Yes, and but this. I, oh, go ahead. And the chaos Muppet. He is. Yeah, he's 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 truly chaotic good. Like he is the epitome of chaotic good. Well, I don't think it's an it's not an order chaos thing. It's an action inaction thing because Wirt is very passive, mm-hmm. and I think that Kathman uh, says he's the Byronic hero in this, which is mm-hmm. the I guess I don't know the Byronic hero is that kind of tragic and mopey. Yeah, like he was referencing Child Herod, Child Harold, the um I like Child Herod. Byron's character. Child Herod. <laughs> yeah, that was another character that they kicked out of Jesus Christ superstar. They just thought it was a little bit too like a scrappy do, so they there you get, you know, nobody's it did not it done, did not test well. I thought it was more like the sorrows of young Wertha, Werther, the Goethe um character or Werther the from the from the Goethe um, mm. story, a reference that everyone has, <laughs> but it is this kind of overly romantic, overly melodramatic, ultimately passive because of this, you know, 
black bile. Yeah, right? yeah, the melancholy uh-huh. of spirit. I am yeah. alone. I am utterly alone. Exactly, and suicidal. Um, maybe maybe implied. I mean, I I mean that's that pushes like it's just that inactivity or that passivity and that kind of self absorption that leads to in the romantic like the Byronic hero the fatal flaw that causes the character's demise and and in Goethe that's by his own hand but it doesn't necessarily have to be it can be just being overcome with ennui i definitely think that inaction and like sloth and slack is something that um wirt has to overcome i don't know if it's his tragic flaw or not i don't i don't necessarily know that he has one but it is something that he he does grow from and grow through but that's yeah so he varies from the Byronic hero in that. And also, it's a little, this makes to me this different from the Inferno and more like Purgatorio, because in Purgatorio, you're shown what you can be and kind of given lessons in mm. how to climb to the next level. Right. There isn't a redemption arc in, in Inferno. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think and, I think this is a Purgatorial thing. Like this is this is a definitely an underworld type journey, but it's it's transitory. Uh, everybody is right. kind of passing through this world. And it's only people mm-hmm. that choose to stay that lose their hope. They're the only ones that really like die a death, mm-hmm. which nearly is what takes word down. Yeah. Yeah. I want yeah. to go back to that where it's like you said, pass, passive and passivity. Being passive is not the same as being uncertain and not knowing what to say. So it's like, I'm not acting because I don't know what to do. If I knew what to do, I would act. Whereas if you're passive, I know what to do. I still, I still choose not to act. Right. On this, okay. this episode really, like, Wirt, Wirt does both. I mean, he's he's um a little very lost. Well, yeah. He's very lost in his head. But in this one, like, he's refusing to act, and he's only doing what he's told to, like, as a point of self parody. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. The bird calls him out on this, and he's like, "I'm not. I don't do anything. I just do what I'm told." Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. As as like a, a way to torment. Beatrice, who's trying to get him to take any action whatsoever. But he, yeah. he does think things to death, and Greg does not think things to death. Greg just right. does. <laughs> it is true. Like, I thought that before I was introduced to Trey the Explainer, I thought here where it was actually very kind of at peak Dante-esque because of that weird sort of pettiness. And Yeah. Oh, he's a snarky little bitch. <laughs> and, you know, just kind of being... Um, right, like Dante at his worst. Yeah. So one lust, Inferno lust call, call out this episode gets is actually, it's from the previous episode. The last shot of the previous episode is a leaf caught in the wind, lodged in mm-hmm. a fence. And that mm-hmm. is the image of lust as people being tossed in a tornado. Yeah. So I think that's mm-hmm. the, the most clear, like, call out to lust. It's not big, though. It's just kind of a throwaway thing. And maybe, it, maybe that is just a leaf on a fence. Mm-hmm. Costuming. The human oh, clothes are mm-hmm. what make make the animals uh, human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a, a big a big <gasps> thing. And the big costume, the big reveal, is that Johnny Morris, Johnny Brown, Johnny Brown, right? has been dressed as a gorilla for the entire like plot arc. So the animals are made human by human clothes. The human is made an animal by a gorilla costume. Mm-hmm. And again, it's all a big misunderstanding. There's this this belief in the in a trope yeah that turns out to not be true well and there's the he, he's not that bad trope there as well because the gorilla is not really anything to be feared mm-hmm. the only thing to be feared is the beast and 
once you realize the beast is only is a creation of fear, you can kind of get over it and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the um, father who's also portrayed as a villain turns out to not be a villain. Yeah, either I think he just has no money. <laughs> the uh, I, I watched the director's commentary. I don't recommend watching the director's commentary. It's extremely them. Seems like, but yeah. they do point out that uh, they really like the idea of um, Mister Langtree wearing this huge coat that's much bigger than his body. Oh, see, costuming again, yeah, sort yeah. of the appearing to be better off than than one is, or sort of larger than one is. I I personally think that Songs of the Dark T- Dark Lantern is my favorite episode of the series. I don't know why. I, I like the Cab Calloway and Betty Boop callouts that you get in the animation. Um, mm-hmm. I like that. Okay, so in this episode, Greg's hungry. It's dark and raining and gloomy, and so they go to this tavern to get a meal, to get directions. And it's full of people that have no names. They just have archetypes. And there's kind of a little fight over what Wirt's archetype is going to be. Uh, They can't decide if he's the lover, and he gets quite a musical number about being the lover, (laughs) or if he's the sacred pilgrim, Mm -hmm. or the pilgrim Mm -hmm. on a sacred journey. And that is a very Dante call-up, because Dante is specifically a pilgrim on a sacred journey. Also, he's got a silly Mm -hmm. hat. And I thought it this, to me, was, again, prior to being introduced to Trey, the explainer, Kerberos. We actually, we have a legit Kerberos here. Yeah, we stumble over a dog to get into the the tavern. Uh Uh-huh. Also, uh, illusion, rain and muck is very circle of gluttony, and that's where we are right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, I think he, Trey pointed out that there's tons of food, but nobody's eating. Oh, interesting. Uh, I hadn't noticed that. You never see anybody eat. But that's more like Purgatorio than it is Inferno. I mean, that nobody's eating. But, but Purgatorio, there's food present. Hmm. And it's, yeah, it's always, always coming. So yep. by not taking part of the meal, you're not taking part in the scene. Like we're passing through. Just- yeah, but you, yeah. Mm-hmm. That may actually be an inverted fairy tale trope, sort of, because this has been described as a fairy tale, and one thing you don't do in a fairy journey is eat. Eat. Yeah. So that Mm -hmm. might be a a, a call out to that. That's true. Yeah. The whole goblin market thing. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. This episode, we learn a lot about the Edelwood. Uh, We learn that the woodsman has to keep the lantern that he's carrying lit with, uh, with Edelwood oil. Because if he doesn't, his daughter's soul is going to go out. She's trapped in this lantern. We learned that the Edelwood trees are the souls of the beast's previous victims. It's a little bit dark. Yeah, it's it's dark for a kid's film for sure. And I think one of the things this series does is alternates silly and dark really well so that neither side is too overwhelming. Uh, is Wirt a lover or a pilgrim? I mean, we're, we have a very binary decision here. Ooh, Pilgrim. I, that's a tough one because he's kind of, he's neither. <laughs> I mean, he's driven by love, like, but he's not in, well, love has put him here. Yeah. But um, like Dante, he never like gets the girl and deliberately like does not let himself get the girl. Like even when she says, let's go to your place and look at your sketch. I mean, your uh, mixtape. He's like, I, mm-hmm. let's, 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 I want to get to a better place before we look at the mixtape. So he kind of turns away from love to keep the love platonic and ideal. And that's very pilgrimy oh. more than lovery. Yeah, just like a pilgrim. 
Yes. <laughs> Keep Lipatonic. Uh-huh. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, but also we have another direct reference to death because of the Highwayman song. I'll knock you out, you out the road. Steal your shoes from off your feet. And then Highwayman, when I make it What, just that it's a Cab Calloway reference to the Heedy Heedy He song, which is an underworld song? No, but that's a good one. But the words are, I'm the highwayman. I make ends meet just like any man. I work with my hands. If you cross my path, I'll knock you out, drive you off the road, steal your shoes from your feet. I'm the highwayman and I make ends meet. And he does the finger across oh, the yeah. throat. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a hmm. weird, disturbing little moment. Like his, his animation is very distorted and, and again, very mm-hmm. uh, Fleischer, but I think more threatening than I usually find Fleischer to be. And that's the that's the rotoscope. Oh, wait, that process. Okay. okay. Uh huh. That's like I think the one place in the in the entire series where they use the rotoscope process because it does have that. It's it is like the um, surreal <clears throat> Max Fleischer, which that's also rotoscope, hmm. like the ghosts dancing. Okay. And, okay. Mm-hmm. The next episode is Mad Love, and it is the one that's mm-hmm. most closely associated with the sin of greed. In Dante's Inferno. And this one, I think, is a fairly close allegory. Uh, for one thing, the main character that we meet in this one is Quincy Endicott, a tea magnate, who's a billionaire sort of character. Played by John Cleese. Played by John Cleese. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that's John Cleese. Yeah, just like Chris Isaac is Enoch. Okay. The neat. musician Chris Isaac. Uh, Tim Curry comes up later. We'll just oh, look yeah. for him there. So Quincy has built, has expanded winchester rifle style his mansion so much that he has not noticed that he's expanded over a neighboring house and kind of absorbed it into his his mansion thing and he sees evidence of like a ghost who turns out to be margaret gray who owns the pre- other house another tea magnet in his his competition their house has kind of grown together while being competition they see each other and kind of declare their love instantly now in inferno misers and spendthrifts they are on this circular track fighting each other. And I think the idea of the houses overlapping and merging kind of lends itself to that circular track idea mm. of the two fighting fighting forces. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but it's also, you know, just like the Winchester Mystery House, it's there's a question of is he mad or not? And he does say that he's mad. Uh-huh, he also, that he's kind of lost himself. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that he's also dead. Like, right. Oh, because of the gravestone, there's yeah. that Easter egg in the, yeah, later, in the cemetery. Later on in the real world, we see uh, his tombstone, and it's covered with vines, so it's been there a while. Also in the mm-hmm. closing scene, there's someone looking at his portrait, but but she's alone. Like, it's <laughs> she's just kind of looking at a portrait like a portrait of an ancestor sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And one more thing, Endicott describes himself as crossing into the abyss, never to return. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty unsubtle. No, 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 that that one's like on the level there. We are we are honestly probably dead here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he's. I mean, John Cleese played nearly headless Nick in aw. Harry Potter, so I wonder if that's why he was cast in this role. It's typecasting. Another kind of big death illusion, which carries us into the River Styx, is that the reason for this entire episode is that the kids want to get a pair of pennies to pay the ferry. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Very, very the sticks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But why does Greg throw the pennies away? 
Uh, I think that might be a rejection of being dead. Yeah. Okay. Like we don't want not- to yeah. cross the ferry. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, consciously or unconsciously, he might be like trying to avoid the forever trip that really the bird is taking them down. Yeah. And it's interesting. The last shot is of all the coins at the bottom of the fountain. Yeah. Like, how did they get there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, have other people taken this journey? You may have figured this out before I did, but just now mm-hmm. researching all the things, the Winchester Mi- Mystery House, which is a big sprawling thing, mm-hmm. was the wife of magnate William Wirt Winchester. Oh, <gasps> interesting. What? And I'm like- No, I didn't know that. Huh. You that That's when you have to do the research to get the connection. That's pretty- It was the Winchester House. It was the- Blah blah blah. It was the Winchester Mystery House. Huh. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe mm-hmm. that's 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 different. Huh. But instead of weapons, it's tea. tea. Weaponized mm-hmm. tea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As I stick well, my pinky colonialism. Yeah, colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about colonialism. Everything is about colonialism. I don't think we have the metaphor of secrets going of uh I don't think we have the metaphor of clothing and costuming here, but there's a lot of secrets and subterfuge. We learn the bird's origin story. There's a lot of stuff that's not being stated. There's a lot of subtext in this episode. So there's de- definitely like deception at work, but mm-hmm. not necessarily like physical costuming. From here, we get to Lullaby and Frogland, which is probably the circle of anger. It's not really represented very well in the series, except that there's um, people drowning and burbling and there's a river running through everything, which is kind of the setting for uh, that level of hell in the Inferno. The river sticks is the main setting there. But beyond it, kind of, there's the idea that this is the river of death. It is explicitly the river sticks. Well, the two coins suggest that it's the river sticks. I think anger doesn't really play up very much in this one. That's fine. Except there is the fight. There's the fight, and the frogs are really mm-hmm. unintelligible. Like they go, which, which kind of reminds me of the burbling in the sticks and things like that. Mm hmm. This episode has a lot of like clothing and costuming. The frogs become human when they wear their wear their clothes. They're really shocked at Greg's pet frog who is naked. Uh, although even <laughs> as a naked frog, he's able to do some really great jazz singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get the three kids in a coat trope because two kids and a frog make a frog man. <laughs> and here's one of the best like costumes are critical to this film thing, which is that we see the scissors that are going to break the curse that turned Beatrice into a bird, they're Taylor's scissors, like they're thread-cutting scissors, which is kind of like the the clothos fate string thing. But also it's explicitly like tied to costuming and clothing and things like mm-hmm. that. They're, they're the scissors that look like a crane sort of bird thing. Yeah, very, yeah. very, mm-hmm. very Taylor-y. This episode is kind of, was supposed to be two parts, two episodes that got kind of merged into one. It begins with this silly, whimsical frog journey through Frogland, and then it goes to Beatrice talking to Adelaide, trying not to betray Wirt to the bad witch, not the good witch, uh, who wants to mm-hmm. enslave them. So this, this is a kind of a funky two-parter. Adelaide is only briefly on screen. She dies almost immediately, so not really a very major threat. Um, maybe they couldn't pay Tim Curry for more than one appearance. <laughs> She crumbles to dust, but most importantly, like this betrayal sets the stage for Wirt's kind of descent into deep melancholy and tragedy and hopelessness. Yeah. And the uh, 
just one more point about the fairy, there's a lot of commentary or sort of assumption that they don't belong. Mm. You know, just like, you know, wait, you've, you know, you weigh more <laughs> than you're supposed to. And also they haven't paid the they haven't paid their their pennies, but they're also again, this is a place where they really they're they don't belong here. Yeah, but they're able to earn their way in sort of because great jazz number. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And and uh you've got one other very important costume. I did. Greg as a drum. Oh yeah, that's true. Oh. They they they, they <laughs> yeah. beat Greg. <laughs> they beat Greg. But he's into it. it. He's into it. Beat me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And yeah, and then um the frog who I forgot what his name is at that point becomes get a gets a singing contract. Yeah, is Mr. Cucumber at some point? I don't know. I think <laughs> George Washington. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the Adelaide is also another character under the thrall of the the beast. Yeah, a lot of people are. Um mm-hmm. but she's one of the bigger ones. Uh also like maybe she's one of the two sisters from <coughs> Spirited Away, where you got the kind of two, oh, right. two witch sisters, which are both like very big head caricature spirit witches. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of t- shows like maybe this is a Miyazaki influence on the series, which is very, very possible. Having yeah. more than one illusion in a, in a series? I know. There's, yes. there's, there's layers. Uh, the entire title of this episode, Lullaby and Frogtown, is probably a reference to like early musical theater. Oh, yeah. And also the entire Over the Garden Wall is a reference to like a 1919 movie. Oh, I did not know Silent that. movie. Yeah. Starring, oh, it's an actress that Patrick uh, McHale uh, was fond of. I think it was him that was super fond of her, but it stars Bessie Love. Oh, what a great name. Mm-hmm. But it's a, you know, kind of mistaken identity love story. So we've got, <laughs> we, we begin the next episode with Wirt kind of having the edges of a mental breakdown, like deep melancholy. He's like mm. having trouble processing anything. He's kind of abandoning Beatrice as a friend because, well, she was going to sell him into slavery to protect herself. Mm-hmm. So the entire series references like Gothic fiction a fair bit. Mm-hmm. And I think the ringing of the bell, probably that's like directly an Edgar Allan Poe reference. And again, this character Lorna is kind of referencing like Lorelai, who I think is a, Poe reference as well. The entire mm-hmm. episode is kind of madness and Hang on. Lorelei was mm-hmm. a siren. What was Lorelei to Poe? I might be referencing like something that I wrote as fan fiction, actually. Oh <laughs> <laughs> now there's I think well Lenore. Lenore. Is in the Raven. Lenore. Mm-hmm. Okay, hang on. So yeah. What's the witch's name? Lorna. Uh yeah, the 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 young woman Not the devourer. Lenore. Right. Mm-hmm. Lorelai is but- Lorelai is uh, is referenced in a lot of Poe referencing things. Maybe it's just a very mm-hmm. Poeish name. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Lorna is the devourer, and she is uh, kept in reign by the bell and by keeping her busy. Yes. Yeah. So she's constantly toiling so that she doesn't. Um, become a monster and it's interesting that Wirt falls in love with her at this time when Wirt is kind of plunging into like suicidal melancholy it's like he's courting death and i don't know this is this is where the season changes from autumn to winter oh that makes a lot of sense because of his Mm -hmm. his personal journey as well Mm -hmm. the black turtles come up again in a big way yeah 
as uh, Auntie Whispers is is hoarding a barrel of black turtles. Uh, she says she's protecting them from the beast. I think is that she's she's oh. definitely protecting them. Yeah, but she eats one. Oh, does she? Yeah, she 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 sucks one. She su- sucks one out of the shell and then throws it. Oh, okay. Throws the shell. There was a f- and so there's a fan theory that those are the souls of the dead. That but- I mean, I was wondering that too. But they also are they right? But they kind of like the dog ingests one and becomes a monster. Right, right. And I think um, the beast has kind of that look as well. So these. These are things that are like dead black and don't reflect the light. They look kind of like Edward Gorey's little dolls or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that she has a huge barrel full of these black turts is, is an odd moment, and it kind of feels like it must mean something. And it, it makes her grotesque because she's, you know, she is this grotesque figure, and then she eats this disgusting black turtle in a disgusting way (laughs) (laughs) and throws the shell. Uh, But again, the not that bad trope, because she's actually not Mm -hmm. a bad person at all. It turns out her daughter is the the real danger in this story, but they just kind of are protecting each other and in the process, sacrificing many, many people to the demon possessed daughter. It happens. It's a cheerful story. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, this is the level of heresy and I think this is the one that has like the weakest like link illusion wise to the series. There's a lot of like lies and spirits and demons and becoming wicked. Um, the most heretical line is the beasts claim there's only one way, my way. Um, but I think this one, this one, the 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 Dante references is very is tenuous at best. I agree, but it does contain one of my favorite lines. Uh-huh. When uh, <laughs> when Greg says we're here to burgle your turts, <laughs> <laughs> we're here to burgle your turts. <laughs> I I had it. This is this may be a little bit of a diversion, but I couldn't stop thinking about as we were going through this. Like we talked about the Gothic briefly, but we can. I think we should come back to that. Are you familiar with Sherwood Anderson, the the name sounds writer, familiar, the but... American author? He wrote. Uh, originally Winesburg, Ohio. Is that is that the, a really is that the one that has a lot of gay subtext? Like there's a no, there's a character in there that owns a owns a shop, and it's now I have to look that one. You know, it's been a long time since I read it, but hands, it's, it's hands. These, the story, hands? the story, hands uh-huh. is um, Google is Let one that check. kind of has has like homosexual subtext. Wing Biddlebaum, that's it. Okay, that's the author. No, Wing Biddlebaum is the character in the story. Hands. Oh, and it's in and it's in uh, Winesburg, Ohio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like oh. a high school literature thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I I remember reading stories from. I just forgot that. Like I forgot the exact stories, but there's this idea of the grotesque. Like there is an idea out there on literature in literature and art called the grotesque. But here specifically, his definition of a grotesque, which is the characters in this book are people who are deformed by holding on to their truth. Huh. And so they kind of worry their truth like a, you know, like a like they kind of hold it so dear that they actually become warped by it. Huh. Okay. And I feel like that is also running through a lot of this. Hmm. Okay. Does that I don't know if that explains why Auntie Whisper's head is the size of a <coughs> prize pumpkin. <laughs> No, she's kind of a, a moon. 
Yeah, um, she may be corrupted by eating too many turts. At the turts, the burgled turts. But I don't know. I was thinking of like that just kept kind of coming up and thinking about like the characters that seem, I don't know, like there are different characters that are kind of holding on to a truth and become kind of, if not disfigured by it, they become sort of these uh, archetypes or, you know, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right word. <laughs> these sort of ridiculous figures, I suppose, like Miss Langtree, for example, or Endicott. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't. <laughs> or, or, or the trees, or the, the woodsman. My literary references aren't that good, actually. <laughs> My degree was in writing, I, not reading. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I strongly recommend Winesburg, Ohio to people. Babes in the Woods, uh, it's one of the, I think this episode really has that, let's do something silly right before we do something really, really dark so that the kids can handle it. Um, because mm -hmm. the first like two thirds of Babes in the Woods is this, Betty Boop, uh, 1940s animation romp, like Mary Melody style through a cloud kingdom where mm -hmm. um, Greg has to fight the North Wind to uh, get a wish from like the Queen of the Clouds, who is probably, you know, St. Mary or Beatrice proper, one of those two. Uh, I, I saw Beatrice when I saw her in this. Theoretically, this is the realm of violence and Dante specifically identifies violence against the self right. as a form of violence. This is, puts the suicide, the suicide woods is in this chapter. Um, mm. But also violence against nature is a part of this, which I think jokingly they play with, with the battle against the North wind. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, so there is no reference to sodomy in this, as far as I know. <laughs> Thank goodness. I think that was probably left on the cutting room um, floor. Yeah, yeah, that was in an earlier vision um, of the over because the the original was supposed to be much darker. Yeah, but it probably didn't go down that road. No, probably not. Mm -hmm. That's for that's for over the garden wall after dark. <laughs> so here's a question. So is <laughs> I know this is also super dark, but I always find that the the this particular episode disturbing because of the cloud world because again is is that like greg near death like is that his death vision yeah it gets so i find it really kind of way creepier and because like fighting the north wind they're kind of freezing as they're turning into this the the suicide trees essentially um to some degree the film the entire series isn't is also about escapism, mm, mm -hmm. which may be why it plays so much with truth and illusion and costuming and things like that. And this may be like a this may be a chance to get out of the very bleak place they're in right now through a moment of escapism because they're in a in a, a dreadful place. I mean, it's cold. Mm -hmm. Greg is definitely picking up on Wirt's like despair at this Can, point. Uh, we are giving we are spoilers, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, so, yeah. like, I don't know why I didn't catch it, but if we're falling into a puddle and slowly drowning, uh -huh. you're getting colder, you're losing yeah. air, yes. like, this is this is nearing the end, the cold, and the, the succumbing to. It is, and um, the, the entire film is kind of built around a near-death experience, because right. Wirt, Wirt and Greg both, like, nearly drown. And so this is calling forward to that. 
Um, the next episode shows that entire sequence. Right. Uh, but also, it's also leading up to uh, the lowest level of hell, which is the frozen lake. I have know. not quite got that calling mm-hmm. forward. This is the cold. Yeah. I thought it was just, you mm-hmm. know, one right, more season wins. in the, yeah, the season mean, of, of circles. Yeah. The next three episodes, this is kind of the, the denouement. And it all takes place in this kind of frozen field sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So we're definitely leading up to that. Wirt is so fallen in despair that he's become wrapped in Adelwood brambles. And in the great battle in the sky, Greg wins a wish, which call back to episode one, where he's asking the bird for a wish. And his wish is to trade places with Wirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of moment of sacrifice, which is like the most serious thing we've ever seen from Greg is usually very happy-go-lucky. And we, we really needed the cloud scene to kind of save us from what happens there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Shock, shocked by his brother's actions, work kind of gets spurred into action himself, uh, starts to be like the, the strong figure that he needs to be just because right. of the horror that he's seeing here. Adelwood turns out to be a fairly heavy-handed reference to the Woods of Suicides in the Inferno. There's a lot of argument in the fandom, for the, the in the over the garden wall fandom over what the word Adel means. Uh, I think they. I was wondering. I think I've got it right and they've got it wrong because no one's ever mentioned this okay. point mm. that I've seen. I, I'm starting to sound a little like Trey the Explainer there. Um, <clears throat> which they, the current idea is that Adel means noble, but I think it's tied to the word Edolon, mm-hmm. which means the soul. Or the spirit. That would make more sense. Because yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's supposedly like keeping the, well, what we think is the woodsman's daughter soul. Right, right. right. Keeping it, the flame alive. And they're the, and, they're the, mm-hmm. the remnants of people that have died in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the unknown. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we missed, we missed an important quote from the beast before we went into this. I think it's from the beast. Uh-huh. I have it written here and I did not ascribe it to anything, but it sounds a lot like the beast. There's only me. There's only my way that there's, there's only the forest. There's only surrender. Uh, I guess that's the full line from the end of the ringing of the bell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's poising himself as the, the Satan, the big villain of this series. Mm-hmm. And, and he is mm-hmm. the only like real antagonist. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yep, 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 yep. I also have another quote that I can't place. Mm-hmm. Which one? <laughs> Inevitable twilight singing our requiem. Admit we are lost for good. Maybe that's one of the bluesy background songs. <laughs> it could be. I'm going to have to look it up because I thought, wow, that's great. But then I didn't write down who well, it does. It. it does fit um, Wirt right now, who is absolutely given up. And he's like, we're, we're, we're going to die. Can't we just admit we're never going to escape this place? Chop the wood to light the fire. I think it's a the woodsman. Oh, the beast sings some merry little songs about death and destruction. Maybe that's one of his lines. Yeah. Uh huh. So yeah. So that I felt like that's that was a pretty amazing quote. And then um, there's a reference to the fog being too dense to understand. Oh, that's too. a good that line. Pretty. It really, really is. Yeah. Um. But also, so one of the things that I saw also was trying to figure out the the silk the like um the spider web that greg brings to the beast 
who asked for um Oh, that's an old fairy tale trope and a and yeah. another broken trope. Uh that's the impossible uh-huh. the impossible asks. Um uh-huh. so uh-huh. you'll like get um you know, bring me uh one one the hair is white as gold, two the cape is red as blood, three the slippers pure as corn, whatever, whatever, or right. or uh-huh. the um the impossible questions like what is what is wider than the sea and what is um what is worse than the woman's curse and what is deeper than the sea? Um, the, the impossible quest and very, very tropey. Usually that gives you the, um, the woman's hand or unlocks the key or whatever. In this case, it's just all it does is it burns out Greg's like living reserves. And at the end, he turns to his brother and says, I beat the beast because he's been doing these epic quests. He's been trying to find the, the this and the that. But all it's done is is wear him out to where he's closer to death. Mm. So it's uh-huh. a bro- it's, yeah. it's the impossible task, but it's it's another broken fairy tale trope. But also, I mean, it it does. And one of the things that I thought of was it kind of is a callback to Adelaide and the threads of life. Um, but also, you know, the thread that in Celtic mythology you have to have this thread to be able to go between the worlds like you have this silken thread that you um can use to get into the uh, into the other world and then be able to get out again it gets a honeycomb the silken thread and then he has to put the moon in oh a make teacup. the suns the moon set in a teacup the sun uh-huh yeah this episode leads into into the unknown the semi-final episode the ice and the freezing and the death kind of flows into what will become the near-death experience at the end of episode nine. Uh, we go back to the real world. Uh, we learn that what was kind of funny costume that maybe was some unknown period is really just Greg and Wirt's Halloween costumes kind of thrown together. And we're in a, like a almost Halloween special style episode, a very special episode. And <laughs> Wirt is crushing on Sarah makes a mixtape for her. <coughs> His impetuous brother like slips the mixtape into her pocket and then they have to go and get the mixtape. Very like comedy sitcom plot. Very simple, very silly, and based on misunderstandings and um people hiding their true feelings. This episode is also tied to the circle of fraud. And this kind of intentional misdirection is probably like the closest link to that. It's not really a heavy, heavy illusion. Costuming is kind of front and center here because it's Halloween. Everybody's dressed up in a costume of some sort. And we kind of learn what those costumes mean for the rest of the series. I kept trying to match little items, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, where it's like you were there and you were there too. You know, like these little pieces of the real world that mm. sort of show up in the in their journey. Through the yeah, woods. This is where we see Quincy Endicott's Endicott's grave. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And Sarah's face kind of looks like Adelaide's. There's a few resonances here and there with different I can see that. Different. Mm-hmm. Uh at the messy end of this episode, all of the kids are having uh, age appropriate drinks in a graveyard, kind of thrill seeking there. And the cop pulls in to kind of scare them off. We know this cop is friendly, he's just annoying. But Wirt takes it very seriously, grabs his brother. They run over the wall in the cemetery and 
kind of fall into whatever's beyond it. So kind of literally take a transition over like the cemetery wall into the land of the dead, like beyond the cemetery wall. Mm. And at the bottom of that, they hit an icy river and sink. Mm-hmm. And this is the most realistic and I have the least to say about this episode of all of them, really. Right. <laughs> this one doesn't take interpretation. No, it's a very straightforward just, story. It, but but I mean, it does, it bridges the bits. Mm-hmm. Like all good death stories, it begins with a journey into or across a river. But it also sort of brings into the story the frog as a psychopomp. Frog as psychopomp. That's the because <laughs> he's the. That's what happens right before they see the train and fall into the river. Is that Greg finds the frog? Okay, and the frog takes them to the land of the dead. Mm-hmm. That's a psychopomp. Mm-hmm. Right. He's a psychopomp. He sings, he dances. Well, you he, know, just like he's a, the bridge, he's the narrator for the entire series. Exactly, right. Like he's yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I think um I think that makes total sense. And also he, at the end, he's the one who has the the bell. Oh, right. Right, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's the showing that he's the link between the land of the dreams and fairy world and this world. Hmm, okay. Uh-huh. Deep. Yeah. This takes us into episode 10, The Unknown. Uh, theoretically, this is the circle of treachery, but I don't think it's really referenced except that we are in an icy, icy place covered in frost, very much like the final moment in Hell Proper, uh, the frozen lake of Avernus. We kind of go immediately into the conflict between Wirt and the Beast, trying to save his brother, who's very freezy at this point, covered in Edelwood branches. The woodsman shows up for this final scene. I guess it's kind of like all the all the characters show up this final scene of the big dance number. Mm-hmm. And Wirt is given the choice to save his brother's life by putting his soul into the lamp to feed um to feed the Edelwood oil to uh to take on the role of the lamp bearer, presumably forever. Which again is kind mm-hmm. of tantamount to being being a part of this land of the dead and giving up on life yourself. But Wirt has grown. He's seen over and over again fairy tale tropes get thwarted, and he's able to kind of say, "No, um, you have no power over me," and mm-hmm. um, yeah. and destroy the lamp, and with it, the beast's power over him and everyone. After that, we kind of we're brought back to land of living, and there's resolution in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Here's a, I have another question. So, do you think? The woodsman, so the daughter's soul was never in the lantern. But at the end, when he's reunited with his daughter, I took that to mean that he now had, he was dead. That is, that is definitely an interpretation. Like, but she Uh seems surprised to see him or happy. I can't tell. It's, it was a little like, to me, it seemed sad. Like, oh, like it was kind of bittersweet. Like, okay, you're here now, but that means you're dead. and they weren't at the mill house. They were at the daughter's house. No. So it was a different place. Uh-huh. Yeah, I could s- – s- so there's a series of images of, like, transitions and closures and moving on at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. Once they break the lantern, we see um, the, the pumpkin people have given up their heads and they're just skeletons again. So they've kind of let go. There's a portrait of Quincy again showing that he might have been dead. The woodsman reunited with the daughter. Either way, the woodsman has left this this land of the dead to move on. And we don't necessarily know if this is the land of the dead or if it's purgatory or if it's just a vision or just a transitional limbo thing. So 
I don't think we can say whether he's dead or not. We can see that he's moved on. I'll mm-hmm. take that. Maybe take that's that. it. It's just they've they've moved on yeah. to to whatever that looks like. But yeah, the only the only kind of and I don't know if if maybe I'm misreading this, but kind of unambiguously happy scene is with Beatrice's family. Yeah, where they're all humans again. They're making fun of her for uh, right. turning them into birds. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, there's positive things. Like the final shot of the series is Greg leaving a rock he's stolen in the garden of the person who stole it he stole it from. And which the is, rock uh-huh. kind of plays a bit in the in prior episodes where it's like he's not it's forced his, to give the rock back. But. Yeah. Well he's asked to give the rock back, but it's like his mask so that he can tell crazy things through it. Like he he almost mm-hmm. uses it as like a mm-hmm. as like a comedy clown mask or something like that to talk through, right? So right. I think him leaving it in the garden is very kind of like I am growing up now. It's like mm. the the big one of the two big character development notes for this character is not very he doesn't grow very much. It's like mm-hmm. punctuated. He can yeah. let know he has a couple of big big moments, and and letting go of the rock is kind of symbolically a huge one. Yeah, and Wirt. I mean, it's like the you know Wirt also has. Mm-hmm grown in that you know we realize that his he has been misreading everything all along <laughs> in, in the real world and in the in in the woods yeah too. like he seems to, i was expecting him to be kind of this put upon kid who's just abused by his peers because he comes across as so broken or maybe i'm projecting my own high school experience on uh-huh. him i don't know because uh, he's a poet yeah yeah but he's popular <laughs> like the girls like him um, he's he's mm-hmm, got a fan base mm-hmm. there. His main rival, who he's set up as this awful person, is kind of an annoying nebbish that really has no. Yeah, he has totally misread his real life, and he's actually like in a pretty good place if he'd wake up and see that. Yeah, yeah, and he's being kind of a jerk to the kids, you know. And Jason, the the complete package, is also you know not at all a threat, just as you say, and also just very friendly and kind. Yeah, well, maybe now that he's kind of realize that Byronic Hero is not the best mode. Um, he's able to kind of <laughs> transform and move on. Mm-hmm. Like he's gained an appreciation for action and for hope as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the closing shots here kind of emphasize this is not truly an underworld. This is more of a purgatory, more of a transitional plane, because again, the pumpkin people, they move on. It's just mm-hmm. a stopping point. The only people that really seem to die are the ones that give up. They're the ones that become the Edelwood trees or maybe get eaten by Lorna. I don't know. But but the only the only way to really die in this universe seems to be to 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 lose hope. Mm-hmm. Or or death isn't that bad. Like death is death is kind of a positive thing in this world in some ways. It's celebrated. The pumpkins, when they see the skeletons rise up to the ground, they celebrate. They say, Yay, we got new friends. Mm-hmm. Let's join the party. Whether or not death is is really bad or not, I think I think you make a case that the film is at worst ambivalent towards death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the the people that die, that truly die, are the ones that, that lose their hope. They're the ones that get stuck in hell as opposed to moving through purgatory. And yeah, and in the Inferno, it's again, those who are like, that hope, that lack of hope creates a greater distance yeah. from salvation. And so that is what's keeping them there. And I mean, I think it's interesting The it, it's almost like the Huskin Bee, the pumpkin people don't quite fit in this world because they're so full of hope, you know, that they know they're, they're certain about 
what the, like, there's no unknown to them. Yeah, that's... You know, it's very certain what's going to happen to them, and they look forward to right. it, <laughs> you know? And they don't become, they don't become, tre- they don't become the Edelwood trees. They, they you know... They just... They become they pumpkins. On. Maybe. Uh-huh, or the dance. Right, yeah. Just like know. real pumpkins. Right. That, that's kind of an unknown mm-hmm, there. Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's kind of a weird, happy, happy moment. Mm-hmm. So the Beast is the only villain that stays a villain, really. Well, Adelaide dies. She may never redeem herself. She just kind of disintegrates. But the Beast is is serious villain. Uh, he's mentioned as one of the most disturbing villains in all of Cartoon Network history, uh, up there with like the evil Sorcerer King in uh, Samurai Jack and Mojo mm-hmm. Jojo, of course, because I think we have to come back to Mojo Jojo at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And him. And him, Yeah. Uh, so he's a, he's mm-hmm. a pretty well-known villain for this for this channel, and maybe his role is to hold people into this world. Like when he dies, we can have these moments of liberation and such. Of course, if it's allegory, maybe it's just wort self doubt manifested. Who knows? But he, I mean, he was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. There's mm-hmm. a lot of self doubt there. Um, I don't know. You could make a case for that, but I think it would be a very compelling case. He, he seems to be like a major supernatural evil, like a Satan type character. That's this that's keeping this world always winter, never Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he has definite resonances with Kuranos, mm. Hearn the Hunter, and there's that split second that you actually see his body, and it's, of, and it's more yeah, like it's made of the um, Lucifer. Yeah, and and there's faces. He has faces Ugh. all over him. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 if you uh what's the what is the condition where you're scared of holes? Hole ref- I hole. <laughs> hole. Fear of holes. <laughs> it's going down the fear hole. Uh-huh. It's like trick Tri- is something. Trypophobia. Yeah, but if you the, the like still of him, it's is like all of these holes oh. and faces and it's sort of like a honey like he's kind of a honeycomb body with with uh, screaming faces attached. Well, he's sort of, I mean, that would kind of make him made up of death. Like, he's made of the the souls lost mm-hmm. the Edelwood. And he's like this death creature that lives on death. So, mm-hmm. maybe he is like the dark side of death or something like that. Or fear of death. That might be another thing that he could be. That's, that's, that's compelling. Uh-huh. But he's kind of both this natural, kind of mythological creature and this evil. Like, he could be sort of a nature god. And you know, or ruler of the underworld, or the devil. Like it's he could he's kind of all of those things. But really, he has no power at all. Like all all he right. can do is mm-hmm. lie. And this this threw me because like usually cartoon villains don't lie so flat out. Like they don't they never say like entirely untrue things. Fairy tale characters mm-hmm. tend not to say entirely untrue things. It's always like a grain of truth. But no, he just flat out just tells a big old fib. That is that is what keeps him alive, um, and that's that feels a little unusual. Is that is that wrong to say? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think no. that's wrong to say. It, yeah. it fits in with the with whole, the Lord of Lies. It fits in with the with the series because this is dark. This is a character meant to be to to push, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean he's he's the he's the everything behind the scenes of the entire series. Like he yeah. he feeds other villains. He's the master villain. Um, and he gets mm-hmm. more screen time than like Adelaide does by far. He's in a lot of shots. It's true. He had a better, better agent. <laughs> but uh, but I feel like I mean, if you think about that, like okay, so this world is held together with lies, 
And then you think about, okay, well, are fairy tales, are those just really pretty lies? Well, are they? Pr- there's a really good line about this. The, oh, no, it's in the yeah, song. Yeah, the loveliest lies of the, all. Yeah. And so, like, are fairy tales the loveliest lies of all? Because there's sort of things that you tell yourself to explain situations. It's sort of, you know, and, and, and like they keep failing throughout, like in a positive way throughout this whole journey. Um, but there's still fairy tales. Like Wirt has been telling himself all these fairy tales throughout, including that he's this outcast, you know, misunderstood right, kid. That's a useful narrative. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, this is all, you know, narratives that people choose to kind of cling to. Going back to my idea of the grotesque. <laughs> the most. See, I made full circle. The most compelling description of the beast for me was early on when Christopher Lloyd says that the beast is the death of hope. And that's a really yeah. powerful mm-hmm. like idea for me. It's, because hope is the only mm-hmm. thing that can get you out of this world. Right. It's the only thing that can mm-hmm. encourage you to move forward at all. So this, I mean, it's, it's, it's giving up. Yeah. And the fairy tales, I mean, they're, they're kind of, th- these end up being hopeful in most Not cases. Not the German ones. <laughs> right. I mean, this goes back to the, go- I mean, the, the ones here, um, but this goes back to the Gothic because there's definitely this Venn diagram of um the the gothic mm. with fairy tales of the grim and hans christian anderson vein i mean they're they're all about sort of exploring the darkness within the human soul and things that are hidden um and you know yeah they just are all about um the interior um reckoning with one's own interior um thoughts this series, I feel like it, it does that. It is a kid's series, but it does that. And then it kind mm-hmm. of rejects the dark side and moves on. It yep. doesn't really mm-hmm. embrace it. It doesn't say, like, these are our inner demons. It's about overcoming mm-hmm. self-doubt, overcoming despair. You know, if it embraces anything, it embraces, like, a, a kind of acceptance of inevitability. But it's like, throughout all this, you have to have hope, and you have to have hope to move on. So I think it, it kind of is, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't it doesn't wallow in that. It's... That's that's the place where it starts and the place where it leaves. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, I mean, thinking about romanticism and the Gothic, which this also has a lot of romance. Well, we have the Bi- Byronic hero word, if you ascribe to that. But the projection of one's own inner turmoil onto the landscape. So oh. you have these ruined castles. You have these sublime... Um, cliffs and these unpassable mountains and storms and these gnarled trees and darkness. And you see a lot of that here too. Cause yeah, like it turns from autumn to winter and as Wirt starts to give up hope and the landscapes change as, as kind of their inner, as especially his inner monologue changes are sort of what's going on with him. There's a, a really good Easter egg for Wirt's development. Um, it's, in a sense, it's, it's his, his, um, like love for his brother that kind of pulls him out of his final despair moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a song in the background, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read most of it. Um, the part that we hear is one is a bird, two are the trees, three is the wind and the leaves, four are the stars, five with the moon smiling down on thee, and it's just kind of background music as he's going down into the water to rescue his brother. Um, but if you mm-hmm. listen to the vinyl soundtrack, uh, the rest of the song mm-hmm. is six are the fish. Seven the reeds brushing the soft bellied breeze. Eight are the roots firm in the ground, deep as my love is for thee. 
And that's the kind of the, the song that is the full song that's playing when he rescues his brother. So it's a little sad that it wasn't actually in the cartoon, but it's, uh, it's, 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 that's strong. So is that the Woody Guthrie song? It's not Little Black Train. Cause I know that there's a, yeah, when they're tumbling into the water, it's supposed to be a Woody Guthrie song. Is that the uh, same I think one? This is an original. Okay. Okay. But also there's a idea I saw, I can't remember where I saw it, but that Wirt and Greg, there's all you know, there's several references to them being stepbrothers. Yeah, they're half so, brothers. We we do know that. Half brothers, that's right. And so um like together they kind of make a whole, but they they don't like Wirt doesn't realize that until later. Yeah. And the the song is sung by the actress that played Beatrice's mother. The the oh. wiki suggests that maybe this is a song that Beatrice sang to her daughter as well. Oh, kind of sweet. Uh huh. Mm hmm. She's so sweet. She keeps trying to get Wirt to eat <laughs> to eat dirt. Eat your dirt. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> oh. So I mean, we have this kind of bookend about fairy tales that is pretty nice with the the, the frog we, song well there's the frog song but then there's the line that uh long forgotten stories are revealed to those who travel through the wood oh yeah oh no that's not or is that from is that from the show or is that something i pulled it's, somewhere it's else? a version of it in the show it's also um in the the not quite pilot episode the, the, oh, uh, Tome of right, the Unknown. Right, right, where they, they use that yeah, line. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Line. So it's that's like where it came from. History is, uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, right, right, right. So that's, but that's a good bookend with the very last lines of the series that say, and so the story is complete and everyone is satisfied with the ending and so forth. Very dismissive. I like that. <laughs> well, I'm satisfied with the ending. These these uh-huh. were presumably happy endings. Really postmodern there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I had a question for you. So if this is the Inferno or Purgatory, what are what are Wirt and Greg's sins? Well, Dante didn't really have yeah, I was gonna sins say, that Dante kept him didn't. there. They're pilgrims. You know, okay. alleg- if it's an allegory, uh, Wirt is uh, Dante because he's got the hat, but also because he's, mm-hmm. he's identified mm-hmm. as a right. sacred pilgrim. But all sacred pilgrims wear ridiculous hats that <laughs> that look like body parts. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. Uh, and so, Vir- mm-hmm. Vir- I mean, Virgil is more a creature of action than Dante seems to be. Like, he's fairly dynamic in the story to a degree that Dante has to grow into. Mm -hmm. Neither of them are really, like, racked by their sins, though. I mean, Wirt is tormented by indecision and and self-doubt and things like that, which I think you get some of that in Dante's initial read of himself, like, lost in the the midpoint of his life. Mm -hmm. If if anything, Wirt's sins are a certain level of self-love, and being overly dramatic, I don't. I don't think you could really say that. I mean, a creature as innocent as Greg is really has sins. I mean, he's he's a thief, and he kind of worries about. I was going to say he stole a rock. Yeah, but but that weighs mm-hmm, on him. Like mm-hmm. he took it from his from someone's garden, and that that like he carries that with him. But he lets go mm-hmm. of it eventually, and that's kind of like his mark of maturity at the end. 
but like I wouldn't say that he's anything other than like a force of optimism that's very hard to put down. Mm -hmm. But his guilt kind of keeps him in there because he believes that or work keeps blaming him for them being there. And he starts to kind of believe it. Yeah, yeah. He he buys into his brother's despair a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where he starts to kind of wear out at the end of the story as well. So what are y'all's favorite episodes and why? Oh, don't ask why. <laughs> I have to. It's not enough to just say I like, you know. I, I like. I like the steel. I like the Dark Lantern, the Songs of the Dark Lantern, because it's very metatextual. Like, the characters are mm -hmm. sitting around a tavern, which is, I mean, great D&D joke, arguing over who is what archetype. And that's mm -hmm. that's very, <laughs> like, on levels, that's kind mm -hmm. of like, that's a very writerly scene. It is. And you you caught the Easter egg with that, too, right? I don't know. Just say yes. The toys. What? The, the oh, carved. Yeah, the the, the image little of the carved toys. Uh -huh. We come back to the final scene where Wart and uh, Greg are added to the toy roster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have the toy maker there, who is the one who's kind of championing, figuring out what Wart is. Right. So he adds him mm -hmm. to his to his set of um, Monopoly figurines. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> what what episode captured you? You were you were torn between two of them. Yes, I'm torn between a uh, school town follies, and I'm torn between. Um, hard was it hard times at the Huskin? Huskin oh, Bee? the most the most Halloween uh, of all of them. Uh huh. I love both of those so much for different reasons because I love the aesthetic of the Huskin Bee one, and I just love the scene where the pumpkin is carving a pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of turns and looks, and also the the weird scene where they walk into the house and the turkey looks up and oh. then just. Puts his yeah, head back the down giant, the, the giant rideable turkeys. <laughs> there was some really great imagery. Like there were scenes from both of those, which was like just, like just, just really well done. Mm -hmm, you got mm -hmm. kind of like you get into it, you build with it, you you ride along. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the schoolhouse, the school town follies, of course, because I'm a sucker for animals <laughs> dressed in human animals clothing, but hats. also. <laughs> exactly but also just the the whole thing when they're playing what is it that with the the game with the old cats oh, two old cats <laughs> that cat's yeah that cat's too old <laughs> did you see you're, you're a krampus fan did you uh -huh. see the image of old scratch that was one of the villains in the series in its earlier conceptions inception yes uh -huh. this, is, this is this cartoon yeah. devil and it's really adorable mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, I wish that that had come to fruition. It's a little on the nose. I mean, I, it's true, but I think it would have been really interesting because I do like the um, Tome of the Unknown. I mean, it, it fits like it could, you know, it's yeah, Death Train, just essentially another yeah, episode. Death, yeah, Death Train is a, is a strong <laughs> image for me. I've, I've heard, I've, I've seen that one a lot. I like it. Yeah, but um, but yeah, so that's where I'm. What about you, Jamin? Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with my my original statement. It's like what when I just said some of the scenery in with the pumpkin, mm -hmm. right, was just absolutely great. The scene, the world building, the interaction, but the entire episode still had parts that were a little bit. I mean, the whole thing was dark, and you know I don't really resonate with dark. You're not a dark dark yeah. person. Or it's like I'm watching. Right. I'm just like, why, why little children just run home? Turn on the nightlight. The lust episode was the perkiest of all of them. That's where, like, Greg's optimism yeah, really yeah, shines yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, hmm. mm hmm mm hmm 
Yeah, it's kind of the happiest one. The uh huh, with a good happy ending. Well, dear listeners, thank you for joining us on this little journey through a lighthearted children's series <laughs> about death. About death, and, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we hope you join us for other journeys in the very near future. Until then, join us on our website, dispatch.ist, where you can find our earlier episodes and check our Find Us On link there to catch up with us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and maybe on Patreon as well. Uh, and until then, we will see you in hell. Bye! Woo-hoo. Bye! podcast is copyright 2021 by the dispatchist and its creative commons you're welcome to reuse with attribution look for us on your favorite podcast app say hi to us on twitter or gmail at the dispatchist no spaces check out our website dispatch.ist for more episodes show notes and a variety of hellish resources 